Um, I wanted to start off before I read the scripture here and just say a special welcome to anyone who's here for the first time, um, especially if you brought someone new. Uh, I know that as we sing songs about things that someone else has done for us or, you know, crossing a river in Israel, um, that can seem odd to you. Uh, or even just singing together as a group. That's not something you encounter much in regular life. Um, but we do this thing because we think that these things are true and that we want to be shaped by these things. And we want to be shaped by truth and by God's love. And so uh, if you have questions about that, um, if you ever want to meet with me and talk about that, I'd love to talk with you about it. Um, if you've got a, maybe some gears to grind about Christianity, like please talk to me about it. I've not always been a Christian. I've had my own gears to grind. I could probably grind some with you if you'd like. Um, but I'd love to listen and talk and uh, just see how we can love and care for you in any way that we can. So thanks for coming tonight. Um, let me read the scripture for us. Um, this is from Matthew 25. This is actually the last thing in Matthew's gospel that Jesus says to his disciples before he goes to the crucifixion. So things that people say for the last time to their disciples before they die are very important things. So <laughs> let me just preface that by saying this. Um, this is Matthew 25, God's word. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison? And did not minister to you. Then you will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Let me pray for us and we get started. Father, these are challenging words from your Son. Um, but Lord, we pray that you would send your Spirit tonight uh, to minister grace and truth through your Word. Um, Lord, I pray now that the words of my mouth and meditation of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Um, so I read a story recently about a man named Brian Stevenson who had studied philosophy when he was in school and undergrad and he gets towards the end of his undergrad career and he realizes you know no one is going to pay me to be a philosopher so he does the kind of liberal arts thing and he applies to law school and lo and behold he must have done pretty well because he gets into harvard law and so you know if harvard law lets you in you got to go to law school so he goes and the first year at law school he still doesn't really know kind of what he wants to do with law I mean, his, he's working really hard. A lot of his classmates are working really hard. But they're kind of doing the networking, kind of climbing the ladder of law school thing. And so at the end of the first year, like, they're getting flown out to Los Angeles. They're getting flown out to New York for kind of big job interviews, kind of schmoozing with people. And he, like, the guy has nothing. So he applies for an internship. 
in Georgia to work with uh, people who are on death row, kind of providing justice for them. And he's a young guy right in law school. He's never done anything like this. And his very first assignment is to go to a prison in Georgia and meet with a death row inmate and tell them one simple thing. This is before the age of cell phones. You will not be killed next year. So he goes. He's driving down through the country of Georgia. He gets to the prison. He goes in, and he sees the man, and he's kind of hunched over. He's definitely worried. He's got the weight of the world on his shoulders, as you would expect someone who knows that there's a sentence like that hanging over him. And Brian Stevenson just looks at him and says, I'm not your lawyer. I'm not your defense. I'm a first-year law student who's an intern. But I came to tell you that they are not going to kill you next year. And then he said that the man's shoulders just unhunched, like a weight had fallen off of him. And he just reaches across the table, grabs Brian's hand, and just shakes it with joy. And he just breaks into a gospel song, like full-on acapella by himself in the prison. Because he knew they were not going to kill him next year. Brian said that this encounter with that prisoner changed his life. That he met that man and that it reoriented his whole intention with law school. Everything he wanted to do with a law degree and what he wanted to do with his life was to help people who are on death row find justice and mercy. And so that's what he did for the next 30 or 40 years. I tell you all that because of this. That we live in a busy, distracted world. But when you encounter something or someone that just strikes at the vitals of who you are and what you care about, it can change your life. And it can set a new course for you and how you think and feel about yourself and the world, what you want to do with your life, how you plan on using your time and your energy on planet Earth. And people of every race and nation and class and culture have found that this is especially true when you deal with Jesus. That when you encounter him, you are really and truly encountering the one true and living God in the flesh. How he thinks, how he feels, how he talks, how he acts, how he cries. The things that concern him are the things that concern God. And what especially he's trying to get through to us tonight is in telling us this story, he wants us to know that the things that we do now have ramifications for eternity. That for good or for ill, what we do matters forever. Our temptation can be, though, that if something like the last judgment is even real, then it is so far away that I probably don't need to worry about it. But what Jesus is saying is that knowing what is coming down the track and having your life reoriented to him and what he thinks and feels about the world will help us to clarify our priorities now, to help us to think about what does it mean for the future for me, for these people, that to meet Jesus means that our lives are shaped possibly This is hope for us in giving us this story. But in me and him, our lives are shaped by his sort of mercy and justice. So tonight I've got two points, just two quick points tonight. The warning of judgment and the joy of judgment. The warning and the joy of judgment. So let's start with the warning of judgment. This is the top of the key right here. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him we gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. First of all, notice that Jesus goes ahead and puts this out there as a when the Son of Man comes. This is not something that might happen or could happen. It's not uncertain as though some things have kind of got to fall into place to make it happen. It is a reality for Jesus. 
It is something that he is as certain of as if he had said, you know, when the sun rises tomorrow, or when the semester ends a few weeks from now, that this is a thing that will happen in the future. It's real. Notice also that he says, before him will be gathered all nations. So this is not a Christian judgment. It is a judgment of all humanity throughout history. The scene here is one where every person is gathered in front of Jesus and given an individual counting of their life. And yet, that surpasses human imagination, but human imagination is not the measure of what God can or cannot do. This is not like Christians will go and do their thing with Jesus, while everyone else will kind of go and do their own thing with whatever. But this is all people, every nation. On that day, everything will be exposed, and each person will receive from God what fairly belongs to them. That those who knew him and learned to love him and desire him in his ways will be rewarded with it. They sought their whole life. To be with God, to know God, to walk in the ways of God forever, undiluted, no filters, life with God and his joy. I mean, real life forever. Those who, knew, those who do not know him will be judged based on how much they knew of his will. This is an individual thing. This is not a one-size-fits-all. But everyone is judged. And they will be judged in the way of life that they chose from that knowledge of who God was. So this judgment will demonstrate God's perfect justice. In a world of sin, full of sinners, where God has allowed every nation to walk in their own ways, you know this, that evil is rampant. That death is real, murder is real, war is real, disease is real, corruption is real. That evil is all around us in very powerful institutions and systems that just swallow people up. And evil is inside of us in thoughts and actions and ways of being that create the very systems that oppress us and swallow us. I mean, take a step back in this. Isn't this the whole point of the Hunger Games trilogy? I mean, you know the story, right? What were you supposed to do with that ending where after all the battles and all the fights were over and you realize that this incoming leader, Alma Coyne, the lady with like the straight gray hair, is the head of the resistance, that she was no better than President Snow, the oppressive leader of Pan Am. I mean, except to say, oh yeah, this is the way the world works, right? The new boss is the same as the old boss. And it is such an overwhelming reality that Katniss Everdeen actually, you know, she kills both of them, but <laughs> as the heroine of the story, spoiler alert, geez, this came out like eight years ago. <laughs> but she's there in the story. She retreats from everything at the end and she just kind of goes into hiding to try and live her own life and not get disturbed by the realities that are out there. That the, same, the new boss is the same as the old boss. What Jesus is saying here is that there is a day coming when God will not retreat from the world, but he will gather it to himself and deal with these systems of evil and deal with the evil inside of every person. And think about this. In a moment of seeing something evil, whether it's on the news or in something you're reading, or really feeling in your bones how potent evil can be, have you ever had like, this question rise in your mind about God? Like, if he's really all-powerful, why doesn't he do something about evil? Or if he's really as good as they say he is, why doesn't he seem to care? Why does he let this stuff happen? The reality of the last judgment will answer every suspicion that God does not care about evil and that he cannot do something about evil. It will clear those things away. 
And the warning here, especially, is to people who show up at meetings like this one and who grew up in the church. Look at verse 44. Then they also answered, this towards the end, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then you'll answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you do not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. When Jesus says that these people will say to him, Lord, you've got to think that they must have thought that they knew him, right? That this is a judgment that is completely fair and it's based according to the evidence of salvation. You didn't, you didn't do anything. You didn't minister in any way. That this evidence is not the cause of salvation, but it shows its reality. And Jesus' warning here is that, yeah, unless grace has actually changed you in some way, the way that you think or feel or act in the world, then maybe you haven't experienced grace. I mean, part of this is a warning, kind of a gut check for us. That if God has actually done something inside of you, then it should be evident to those who are outside as well. It's not just something personal inside of you, but it's something for the world to see. The damned here are surprised by his judgment because they just did not think about the necessity that people who supposedly get grace must also give grace. And that if they don't ever give grace, then they probably haven't received it. They've left something undone that by all rights they should have done. They should have cared for the poor. They should have cared for the hungry, for the imprisoned. And in doing so, they would have cared for God himself. And so they've not just sinned against the poor, but they've sinned against God. And you didn't forget the poor, you forgot me. I don't even know you. That according to Jesus, the service of the lowly, of the insignificant, of the unimportant in this world's eyes, is the last resort, the test of discipleship. That to serve these sorts of people is to serve God. And we might never say this out loud. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> but we can fool ourselves, I think, at times and say, well, I'm working to become rich and powerful in order to better serve God. Because God needs people like that to, you know, really influence the influencers. Jesus doesn't give us that option here. To work our whole lives just to care for very wealthy, powerful people and to forget about the downtrodden and the forgotten is just not an option that he gives. And Jesus' serious warning here is that God will judge the world according to his standards. You know, if that disturbs you, then that's exactly what it's supposed to do. His intention here is, and his kindness, to arouse us to look up from our day-to-day routine and to turn to him and say, save me. Like, save me from that day. Give me your grace. Then in order to see ourselves rightly and understand our lives rightly and have that right perspective, we need a change in the way that we understand ourselves. We need a change perspective. Alan Watt, the author of the 90-day novel, says in a good story that's really real, like your story, fundamentally there are no problems, which bear with me for a minute on that. There are no problems in those kinds of stories. There are only dilemmas. You see, a problem is something that can be fixed really easily. You know, I've got a toothache, I go to the dentist, I'm out of groceries, I go to the grocery store. But a dilemma is different from a problem. You see, a dilemma is a problem that can't be solved without creating more problems. Like, you try to fix one thing, and it just makes lots of more problems, right? Like, that's a good story. To fix a dilemma, you have to change a perspective to resolve it. And see, here's the thing, is that our perspective may be that we're the hero of our story. And that if there is such a thing as sin in our lives, it may be a problem, but it's not a big one. Like, if we try a little harder to be good, if we work on some bad character traits, we'll resolve this problem. Like getting a dentist to fix a bad tooth. 
But you see, sin is not your problem. Sin is your dilemma. That when you try to fix sin on your own, it only creates more problems. You either ignore your sin and focus on everyone else's sin. You know, all the bad people are out there. All the good people are in here. Or else you obsess over your sin and you just drown in guilt. You collapse in on yourself. But what you need to resolve your dilemma is a change in perspective. In warning you of Judgment Day, Jesus is trying to change your perspective on you and yourself and what you can do and your story. That God's desire is that sinners would leave their sin and they would come to Him. And that He would pardon them. That's something He loves to do. Because the reality for Christians is not that they did not deserve Judgment Day. In themselves, Christians are just as deserving of eternal punishment as anyone else. But the reality for Christians is that their Judgment Day has already come and gone. And that it fell not on them but on Jesus. On the cross. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. In order that we would become the righteousness of God. That that grace, that thing that Jesus does for us that we can't do for ourselves, is just a gift. I mean, just look at what Jesus says to the sheep on his right, the people that made it. He says, come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Do you inherit something because of what you've done? Or do you inherit something because of what someone else has done and they died and gave it to you? Right? That's how you inherit something. An inheritance is given not because of what you did in your life, but, but what someone else did in their life. And the inheritance of God's kingdom is open to anyone who would have it. That God would just give it to you as a gift. But first, you have to need to, you have to, need to see this change in perspective that God is offering for us here. That God wants to deal with your dilemma. And he wants to deal with it himself by giving you his kingdom. But first, you've got to come to him. So if that's the warning of judgment, what's the joy of judgment? Going back up to the, closer to the top. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. Thirsty, and you gave me drink. A stranger, and you welcomed me. Naked, and you clothed me. Sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Look, these people are equally surprised at God's judgment of them. They were not working this whole time and thinking, you know, Jesus is going to love this, jewels in my crown, can't wait for this thing. This is not a mercenary affair. But these are people who are faithfully living in the gospel according to what Jesus has done. And that is really the first job of Christians. It is not to make the world a better place, though, you know, that's a hopeful result. But the first job of Christians is to live in the story of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Think about how this just torpedoes the idea that we can sometimes tell ourselves that, you know, well, let's just help the poor and needy who really deserve the help. Everyone else is going to defend themselves, but we're going to find the people who really deserve it, and then we're going to help those people. Because that is not the way that God has approached us in the gospel. I mean, think about all the things that Jesus is thanking these people for. They are the things that Jesus does for Christians. The sort of needy people that Jesus describes is the neediness that he's taking care of in us. That when we were hungry, God fed us with the bread of life. That when we were thirsty, he gave us water, welling up to eternal life. 
that you were a stranger and an alien and an enemy of God's kingdom, and he welcomed you and made you a beloved child. That you were naked and he clothed you with his righteousness. You were sick and he heals you of all your infirmities and diseases and has made you whole. That you were trapped in the prison of sin, unable to free yourself, and he visited us and he set us free. Now, I tend to go and be with people like me. These kinds of people are people like you. We are needy people if we are Christians. Beloved, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And that is not a freedom to be abused where your life is lived for yourself. It is a freedom to be lived in the story of the gospel. It is freedom to participate in the life that you were made for, a life of faith lived in imitation of the God who for our sakes became poor so that through his poverty we would be rich. Well, aren't we justified by works apart from the law? Yes. Yes, you are. But the reality of our faith is shown by our works. Have you ever wondered this? When you read passages like this and you say, okay, I need to care for the poor, who are the poor on this campus? Who are the poor here? I mean, granted, you can go off campus and work for things like CEF or Jobs for Life or Habitat, and those are very worthy of your time. But who are the poor here amongst us? In a place where no one is starving, no one is naked, who doesn't want to be naked, who are the poor here? That's right, I went there. (laughs) Think about this. The real currency of UNC is not money. The real currency here is relationships. Y'all work for relationships. You long for relationships. You agonize over relationships. You are greedy for relationships. People with lots of friends and the ability to make good friends here, they are the truly wealthy of our community. And people who lack relationships and struggle to make friendships, they are the poor. Think about the gospel story. What was Jesus called? A friend of sinners, of whom we are the foremost. What if there was a community of people on this campus who embodied the ethos of being friends to sinners? People who were secure enough in their love for one another, they could not just be a community that was tight and they loved each other, but they could be a community that actually faced outwards towards UNC and gave friendship, gave relationship to people. Like, what if this was us? What if this was you tonight? Like, loving Jesus, pursuing people, as you've loved those people, you're actually loving Jesus? That in light of the judgment of grace, think about this, all the distinctions that we tend to live by, class, race, moral record, nationality, education level, popularity, beauty, athleticism, whatever, those things do not matter. In the end, they're just sheep and they're goats. And God cares about what you've done in the midst of that. Or think about this. We're about to have an open leadership meeting on Saturday to talk about what the ways that we can serve one another and serve this campus through RUF. And if you're interested in coming to that and considering the ways that you can use the gifts that God has given you to serve, please come. We'd love to talk with you for a few hours and buy you a Chick-fil-A lunch pack. Uh, but you know if you come and you decide to lead with us that leadership is primarily about service, that leaders in God's kingdom are the first to give up their time and their resources for the sake of others. And if that sounds costly, it's because it is. That in a meritocracy like what we live in, this goes completely against the grain of the social merits that you get rewarded and judged by. But you have to ask yourself this question. 
Do you want to live in a meritocracy and by the rules of meritocracy? Or do you want to live in and operate according to the rules of God's kingdom? A place where the issue of your merit was never on the table. Where we inherit something that was earned by another and given by that person's death. To be one of God's people means that you are an inheritor of God's kingdom. And so you are unimaginably rich. Yet it also means that you are like Jesus. And you live like Jesus. And so you are a servant. That both those things are same are true about you at the same time. You know, you could say, you know, this sounds cool, Simon, but I've got my clique of friends and the four or five of us, we spend all of our time together. And if someone else showed up and joined us and we kind of invited them into that and gave them that relationship, that would kind of throw off the whole vibe of what we've got going on. Y'all, on a campus where poverty for us is often measured by social capital, how well do you think that sort of group of friends is doing at taking care of the poor in our midst? Like, that's not being a friend to sinners. Because you know how would you, you would know that God's grace was actually at work in your life? That if you came to a meeting like this one, and you talked to someone who did not look like you, and it felt a little awkward, and it wasn't entirely comfortable, and yet, you know, you could have had an extra couple of minutes with some good friends that you're going to go hang out with later anyway, but you didn't, because you know that you've got good friends here. And the person across from you does not have those sorts of friends. I mean, you can see that in their face as you come in. Do you know what that would be? It would be doing the work of Jesus for that person. Being a friend. You know else what that would be? It would be serving the needs of Jesus in our midst. We can think, does something so small and so insignificant as a sort of awkward, get-to-know-you conversation with someone, does that matter that much in the grand scheme of things? According to Jesus, the answer is yes. If the Bible is true, and it is, then one day each one of us will stand in front of Jesus and some will hear the the words come and others will hear the words depart. And that if this is true and God's grace is really at work in your life, then you will stand there one day and look into the face of Jesus in all of his glory and he will say to you, Thank you for caring for me when I was needy and spending time with me when I was sick and providing for my felt needs out of your resources. I have a world of delight prepared for you. Now come and enjoy it with me. Do you know what that would be? That would be the joy of God's judgment of you. Come, welcome, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the joy that we long for. That's the joy that I hope that we have. So I, I want to end with this. There was a guy a few years ago uh, named Millard Fuller, who's a dude from Alabama, like me. Uh, not all people from Alabama are great. This guy was great. Uh, <laughs> there's two of us now. Uh, <laughs> uh, he graduated with a BA in econ. He became a lawyer. And he was just like a hard-charging, super smart, very driven, very connected guy. And he was... So much so that by the time he was 29, he was a self-made millionaire. But the problem was this, that his marriage was on the rocks. He was deeply unhappy. And so when he's 30 years old, he moves to a small town called Americus, Georgia. And he kind of starts hanging out with these people called the Koinonia Fellowship. It's just a church group. 
And it's not a cult. And uh, <laughs> he gives away all of his money because it wasn't making him happy. And he falls in love with serving people and caring for people. He goes and becomes a foreign missionary. He comes back. And he starts this organization. You might have heard of it. It's called Habitat for Humanity. He falls in love with caring for people. And he was once having a conversation with this skeptical woman who's not a Christian. And he said, you know, you don't have to be a Christian to live in one of our houses. Or even to help us build one. But the fact is the reason I do what I do and most of our volunteers do what they do is that they're being obedient to Jesus. Beloved, sometimes we can wonder, how do I know that I have the sort of faith that will be able to stand up on the last day, that Jesus would look at and say, well done? What if this was the way? That to let God's grace lead you into being obedient to Jesus, to live in the story of the gospel and to love people out of that, where God was working out his salvation in your life through caring for people and being a friend and confirming to your restless, sometimes troubled heart that he really does breathe new life into people like you and I. Look, if we've gotten grace, then we must give grace. And my invitation to you tonight is to both receive and to give the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace in our life, um, that you love us and that you care for us, or that you've given us the whole world. You've given us yourself. All of your love, all of your welcome, all of your joy has been poured into our laps at no cost to us and at every cost to yourself. Help us to live in that. Help us to honor that. Lord, if there are people here who don't know that, Lord, I pray that you would move their heart, that they would ask you for it, and that you would give it freely. Lord, help us to live in the gospel and to love one another out of it and to love this campus out of it as well. In your name we pray, amen.